Good morning, Anthem family. You know when you're asked to read scripture and there's a bunch of place and people names? Thanks, Josh. <clears throat> Would you stand with me if you're able? Realizing that people in the Old Testament stood for six hours at the reading of the law, we can stand for five minutes, I think. Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, chapter 3. Then Eliashiv, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanael. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berakiah, the son of Meshavel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, son of Ba'ana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Sorry. <laughs> Tongue twister here. Jayada, the son of Pasa'a, and Meshulam, the son of Besudea repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Zadon, the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabeah, opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashavniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashuv, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halochesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkiah, the son of Rahav, ruler of the district of Beit HaKherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Malkiah, Mazpah repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's gardens, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, 
the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half of the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashaviah, ruler of the half-tribe of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of the half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashiv, the high priest. After him, Meremot, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashiv to the end of the house of Eliashiv. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin, Hashuv, repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maseiah, the son of Ananya, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section. From the house of Azariah, Azariah, to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the corner at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. You may be seated. I got this. All right. That's actually pretty impressive, isn't it? And, and you wonder why I, I didn't choose to read it. Um, I saw what I was teaching, and I was like, well, I guess I'll go for it. But they asked if I wanted a reader, and there's only... One person we trust, Bruce, if you don't know it, he's actually a professor and teaches this stuff, so it's somebody that we kind of trusted to actually go through this. But yeah, as we get started, this is God's Word. I think it's really important that we all stand together, even though it seems long or maybe just a long list of names, just out of reverence and respect, that we signify by our posture that we believe that this has a level of authority to speak in our lives, and we honor it that way. But as we get started, in Nehemiah chapter 3, 
kind of what I want to do here is, is what do you do with a, a chapter that's uh, a long list of names? And it seems to be fairly redundant about this person builds, this person restores, and it just keeps going for 31 verses. And kind of what I want to do here is, uh, is answer a couple questions. Um, first of all, what's going on here? If you're new here, you're probably wondering what we're studying. Um, why are they rebuilding this wall? What, what's the context of here? And, and more importantly, what does this actually mean for me here and today? You might, you might miss that there's a, a, a significance in a bigger picture that I want to highlight versus just names and stuff um, and definitions of that. But I think it's really important to frame the context um, by which uh, th- this story sits and the book of Nehemiah, actually, if you, if you didn't know, is actually a companion book of Ezra. They're actually one book at one time, and we've kind of recently separated them out. And the context of this book sits in the return from exile. Now, we have to remember that. So, so what is this exile? Uh, the exile is God used a country, Babylon, to carry out his judgment against his people, Israel. Now, some of the questions I got uh, is wondering, how do the Syrians fit in? How do these different countries? When we're talking about the exile, we're primarily dealing with the southern kingdom of Israel, which would be Judah, primarily termed as Judah. And they lasted about 134 years longer in their status, in their country, than the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom was kind of wiped out by Assyria and had been assimilated into them. But we're primarily talking about the people of Judah, God's chosen people who he made a covenant with. And he said, hey, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. Love me, obey me, and I'll bless you for all nations. But Israel in the story, they rebel against God and they follow other gods. They become unfaithful. They begin to break his commandments. And as a result of that, God continues to give them warning after warning after warning to kind of correct them, but they refuse So as a judgment, God carries out that they're conquered by another country, and some of them are carried away into the country of Babylon. Now, this took place in about three deportations. You would think that uh, it was just a huge mass of people just hauled away, but that wasn't the case. There's far less people that were moved into Babylon than you would think. And God, through his prophets, he began to speak to the people and say, hey, one day you will return. So we're talking about a people who are in exile, who are conquered as a form of punishment, but this was not the end of the story. See, God did not abandon his people. He still was actively working. And we, we pick up where people have begun to return to their country, return to the temple with hopes A decree goes out for the temple to be rebuilt. This is a big thing. After their place of worship, the only place that they could properly engage the presence of God was to be rebuilt again, right worship restored. They begin to enter their country with hopes of the promised Messiah that the prophets had spoke about that was promised to rule and reign. Hopes for God or Yahweh's kingdom that would set up and that it would not end as was promised to David and all the other promises attached to Abraham. So the return happens in three waves. 
The first one started with Zerubbabel, and he comes back to build, rebuild the temple. And kind of his conflict and resolution is they rebuild this temple, and they still have some people who remember the earlier temple, and they begin to weep and mourn at this time of rejoicing where the young people have never seen this. They're, they're excited and they're pumped. And there's such a commotion, they can't tell who's excited and cheering and who's crying. So his conflict was that the temple was not what it used to be. And some, about six years after that, we come to Ezra, more closer to the storyline, what we're following. And Ezra was a scribe. He's a teacher. He returns to teach the people the law, the Torah. And he finds that the people, as begins teaching them, they had kind of become like the Canaanites, the people around them. They've kind of intermingled. They have rejected God. Now, 10 to 15 years probably pass as where we pick up in our story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, remember, he hears the reports of the state of the people of Israel, and it breaks his heart. And he gets permission from the king to return to rebuild this wall. And that's the context where we're speaking. So, so why rebuild the wall? I mean, it kind of makes sense, but have you ever really thought about the significance of the wall? This whole story kind of revolves around it. I think in the previous chapter, it kind of highlights it. In, in 2.17, we have Nehemiah speaking to the people, and he says this, And I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Come, let us build this wall of Jerusalem that me, we may no longer suffer derision. See, when you have broken walls, it leaves you vulnerable. It shows that you're actually ruled by somebody else. You cannot stand on your own. You're a harassed people, easily oppressed. That word derision is, hey, it's shameful to be this way. It's a disgrace. So the wall has practical purposes, but it also is very symbolic. The wall in Nehemiah's mind was, it revealed God's blessing. If God really, truly was restoring these people and bringing them back to a place of worship, why would they sit in such disgrace? Because it'd be a sign to the enemies around them that, hey, God is not actually for you. He still rejected you if they're in this state. And so God, was in Nehemiah's mind, he's, God is restoring dignity to a people who had suffered greatly, who had suffered his judgment, but now are becoming restored. So in Nehemiah 3, people start to build. We see a really long list of people that worked on the wall. Over 40 sections of the wall are men, mentioned. I think the key thing that we want to zoom in here is this is how God chooses to restore the wall. This is how he chose to go about this project. It's people, the common. It, it seems unmiraculous, but it's look at the variety of people that we read about. There's priests, there's merchants, goldsmiths, there's sons, there's daughters mentioned, rulers, perfumers. We want to remember, in the story, God is actively moving. He's not standing idly by or absent, but he's actually working in this. Begin with Nehemiah and his heart being broken over the state of things, and Nehemiah begins to seek God and pray. God opens opportunity for him to speak to the king. 
the king grants him permission to leave to accomplish this task, even equips him and, and gives him supplies, gives him authority. So we see the, the stirring of the people when Nehemiah says, hey, look around at the state of things. Stop and look at the state you're in. We're in trouble. And God begins to restore using his people. So, so what can we learn from a long list of names? Kind of a seemingly dull chapter, right? But what I want to focus in, the lens by which I think we need to view this today, is the parallels of this story. We want to look to see how God works and moves. What are the spiritual realities? How does God actually accomplish his looks, works? What are the parallels there? So the key idea here is restoration, rebuilding, a renewal. Just like the spiritualities and how these people are currently working to rebuild the wall, it's true in our lives. God actually seeks to restore our life. Now, when we begin to find deeper spiritual significance in these things, we have to kind of put some, some boundaries on what we can draw and what we can say exists. Uh, meaning that there's a lot of spiritual significances that we can point out because it preaches well. Meaning if we see the word three, Nehemiah rested three days, hey, three's with the Trinity, that's a Holy Spirit thing. Or we begin to insert things that just do not exist. There's a real danger in that because we're following a narrative. So I want to be very careful in approaching this. Also, when we begin to pull out spiritual significance there's a couple terms that we'll be using a lot here that we'll kind of need to further work out later, and I hope to get to that. The idea of rebuild versus what God does completely new. We begin, can begin to say, hey, God rebuilds a life, and we begin to attach that to terms of salvation where there's some nuance there that's different, and hope to kind of delineate between those things. But I believe we're going to get these little glimpses that are pieces to a much bigger story. Everything here is connected to a larger story. The Bible's one continuous story. It's a grand story of redemption, of restoration. So how does God choose to work? If we look here, I believe, I believe the restoration and the work begins in the mess. The rubble, the, the broken pieces. So these people begin to fix the wall. They begin to repair. Some places are just broken down. Some are utterly destroyed. But there's piles of rubble absolutely everywhere. They're lying all around. How, how do we know that? How do we know what they're building with? And in chapter 4, verse 3, we get a glimpse where they become, where Tobiah begins to mock them. And he says this, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him said, yes. They are rebuilding. Fox goes up on it. It will break down their stone. Right before that, it says, will they just restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in the day? And here we go. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps, out of the rubbish, and burned ones at that? So even what they begin to build with is complete garbage. It's all burned. It's not like they ran to the Home Depot to buy brand new stuff. 
That's not how it worked, but all, everything lying there in a mess, they begin to pull out and begin to build this wall. And I believe this is the way God works. The spiritual reality is this. If, we're, if, we're, if we get real, the reality is we're all broken. There are places in our lives that are that mess, that are that rubble. Where is it at? I don't think one person sits in here that's a perfect person. When we begin to look around and say, hey, things are not right as they should be in our individual lives. We have, we have flaws, past hurts, addictions, our thoughts, what about sin patterns? And the, and the list can go on and on. And as tempting as it might be when we come to church, we can't hide it. It's something visible. It exists. It's not as if when you first come to Jesus that your life is all of a sudden perfect and all put together. There's this process, this work, and this restoration that needs to take place. And it begins to take place. And these broken down areas in our lives, they have to be acknowledged, they have to be ex- seen and recognized in order to begin this process. And it can be tempting to just pretend, hey, those things don't exist. I, I have it all together. Trust me, it's there. Other people see it. Your spouse, your family. If you're real... There are things that exist in your heart and your life that are broken and need God's work, God's miraculous hand to move. Maybe it's a blind spot. Be tempting to just kind of sweep it under the rug. You know, hide those things. It's like your kids. I'm sure some of you who have kids have this the same issues. When you ask your kids to go clean your room and they say, yeah, I go, I went and cleaned my room, it's really great. But you begin to look under the bed and you realize, hey, those 3,000 Legos that are usually spread out all over your floor are now shoved under the bed. And you're telling me it's clean. Along with other candy wrappers and who knows what under there. The quick way of dealing with something. But that's not what God wants to do in our lives. And this isn't just ourselves individually, but we can see this brokenness that really does exist. It exists in relationships, families, friends, marriages, our cities, countries, even all of creation itself. Everything is under the strain of this condition. But yet God wants to move in that. He wants to begin there. And I feel I have to throw out a caveat when we speak of marriages or other things uh, that maybe people have gone through divorce or splits or there are some situations that are not good or safe and, and they needed to take place. And so I don't want you to feel the weight or the guilt of these things, that feeling that maybe you didn't work long enough to restore. But I think the story is something different, that God wants to work outside of that. I just feel we live in a day and age where I have to kind of preface that. See, restoration 
it's really hard work. It, it takes time. It takes focus. We can hide the mess. You know, out of sight, out of mind. Let's pretend these things do not exist. In the process of dealing it, dealing with this, it can be easier just to drop these things altogether, move along. Oh, I'm tired of this. There's hard things to deal with in life. I'm just moving along, going on to something new. I'm done here. I mean, look at church hurt. You run into one problem, what's it easier to do? Instead of deal with your brother or your sister, it's easier just to go to a different church. Get a different job. It's easy to become complacent, to give up in these things, this hard, difficult work. If we look at these people, how long had the walls actually been knocked down? How long have the people seen it? Hundreds of years. They tried to rebuild the wall probably 15 years ago, but just stopped because of opposition. They kind of became numb to it, used to seeing that. I mean, how many things in our life do we get so comfortable at, at, at seeing? We, it, it's there, it's glaring, but we've seen it so many times that we forget it's there, right? I mean, our houses are probably a prime example of that. I live in a house... And we started fixing this up, I don't know, it was over 10 years ago, at the point where things that we did 10 years ago, now are time to start redoing again. But when we got to this place, there was on our wall, there was this doorbell that had been ripped off from the 70s, and it's just hanging wires and bare open and all. And I think I fixed it, when was it, three weeks ago? And it's been sitting there the whole entire time. Wires open. Once in a while, I'd notice and be like, oh, it's not that bad. And it's right when you walk in our door. And like those things, that's just an example. Like you forget that it is there. Took me all of an hour to fix it. But yet for 13 years, it just sat there. Like, oh, it's not that important. Not Not a big deal. And I, and I think the brokenness is like that. How many things are we just kind of move on from that are deeper flaws? So we see the work begins here in three. And, and starting with the gates, it says this in verse one, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they began and they built the sheep gate and consecrated it and set its doors. So we see the priests begin, and the, the people on these sections, they start with the gates, the more difficult parts to build, the kind of cornerstones, if you will, of wall building. They, they, people would have to come in and out, and so they start with these vulnerable spots, the first places that would be attacked, places that had to be open for your people to come in and to leave. But the high priest, and I think it's really intentional here that they list the high priest first. Look who's mentioned first. It's significance. It started with the spiritual leaders. Kind of showed that they were behind the vision of Nehemiah. What would it have been like if they actually didn't get involved? It would have been pretty defeating right away. But it says this interesting word. It says that they consecrated it and set its door. So this word consecration, what's it about? 
It means to be holy, to be set aside, to be declared as separate, to separate yourself from contamination of anything that would separate you from God, to be pure, separateness. And I think there's this parallel in a gospel reality because of the finished work of Jesus when he says that we are chosen and we are declared holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 4.1 says this. That work begins to be the same with us. We are consecrated. When God begins to do a work in your life, he consecrates you and he sets you apart. First Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, it says, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is speaking to the believers. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Also in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So, so this idea exists that in the scriptures that say, hey, this is who you are in Jesus. This is the truth about you. And in light of it, this is how you should live. Peter spends a lot of time, hey, you be holy like God is holy. And it should be a marked difference. And it's very interesting. If you begin in your life in the, in the process of this, of this restoration and to pursue holiness, to pursue Jesus, what happens? Well, conflict will arise right away. All hell will begin to break loose when you begin to push into these things. In the piece of this restoration, there's a similar word. The scripture refers to it as sanctification. Same theological term. It has some overlap. It means to be set apart and be holy. And that is a part of our walk. The process at which we are separate out, separated out. And it's a very important term. So when you become saved, the Holy Spirit begins this process of sanctification. And that literally means that everything is going to be stripped in you and pulled away that doesn't belong until you become more and more like Jesus. That's an that's a easy way to remember this. The process of being made more and more like Jesus. An ongoing work. And this is something that happens all our lives as we follow Jesus. Something that's never completed until the day of glorification when Jesus returns. And this is not salvation. This is not a works-based thing that I'm proclaiming, but this is something different. When we, salvation is something that we could never earn, something that we undeservingly were given. But this is the process that happens after that. And, and the primary way, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that does this in our lives. And the other way this takes place is primarily in, in community with other people. How does God work? It's not just this internal thing, but God begins to use his house, his people, to help shape these things. When you read the New Testament, we have these commands. There are over 59 times that it says, hey, unto one another, this is how you should live. Love one another. Encourage one another. So there's this aspect of the sanctification that's played out towards each other. Just think of the relationships that will bring out 
point to areas where you really are broken. Think of the close ones. Isn't marriage the most revealing relationship? Those who are married, if you want to know you have any problems, I'm sure your spouse could really confront that. Right? What about in families and other close friends? God's put you in a room with other believers to, to bring these things, to be a part of that work. And we see as this begins, it's not just individually, but it's that collective. And in this section of over 40 people mentioned in the wall, we have to wonder why he listed all these names. And, and I think part of it has to do with God's just giving honor to people who, who participated. It's a really, really wide list. Some of these names are never mentioned again. And it'd be great just to stop with the priest, right? Yeah, the priests consecrate the wall. Why don't they consecrate the rest of it and build it? But it doesn't start with them. God includes everyone. And I think this is a beautiful picture of people working together in unity to build. This is what we see in kingdom work. The diverse, the variety of gifts, the variety of abilities. Some people by this list would appear completely untrained. Merchants, perfumers, priests. I mean, if you need work done on your home, your first thought isn't to probably call the pastor, is it? Probably not. I mean, what is going on here? What are, what are the merchants doing? You'd think, do these people know how to build? Or are they just kind of decorating people with jewelry? And are the perfumers just running around for people who are working hard and smell bad and spritzing them? Like, what, what is actually happening here? But it's a beautiful picture, people working side by side. Unqualified people, but yet... Yet, they arise together, and, and they work. And I think that's a parallel. Here's the point. We've all been called to some work. question is, will you work? You've all been given gifts. You've all been given abilities and spiritual gifts. Remember where we came from where we spent eight weeks talking about spiritual gifts. Will you use them to build up the church, to encourage others? All these people in this story had different capacities for work. If you read it, some did huge sections of the wall. Some did small, tiny repairs. Some people even did what was right in front of their homes. In verse 28, it kind of highlights that. These people worked on the wall right in front of them. So I don't think there's really a convenient time to, to engage in God's work, to engage in dealing with the mess. Excuses are, are far too easy. They abound. Even, even really good excuses exist. But there are a group of people who are called out. In verse 5, it says, And next to them the, the Koites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lords. They're too proud to work. They refused. And here they are for all eternity we pointed out that these people refuse to do anything. So church, I'd encourage you, don't miss out on what God wants to do, the work that he wants to do, not just in you, 
in the restoration, in the renewal, but also through you, this kingdom work. We're called to be a part of that. And this story parallels and points to a much bigger story. See, we're looking at these smaller pieces that belong to a much bigger picture. People return from exile, temples rebuilt. They're actually going to build this wall in, in a, a really rapid time. Yet, it wasn't enough. The book kind of ends at this anticlimactic ending. Nehemiah did do what he set out to do. But there's always this bigger issue that still existed that had to be worked through. And the story kind of points us to that, to kind of be left in that tension of, hey, this, this wasn't enough. Was it all about the wall? No, I think it's pointing to something so much greater. See, the problem of sin still had to be dealt with. The problem that actually separates us from God, that can separate us now. See, the prophets spoke And in their writings, they communicated what God said and said that, hey, my people actually need something different. They need a new transformed heart. Not just a restored temple, not just rebuilt walls, but something completely new. So people were longing and and looking forward to win that newness when God would do that completed work. And that's where we find the promised Messiah, Jesus. That is where our hope lies. See, Nehemiah wasn't the hero we needed. He falls way short. And it's actually purposely meant to be that way. And as the author of Hebrews lays out, there's the better. Jesus is the better. You can do great things, but we're always on this connecting to this bigger story that Jesus is better. That is where our hope lies. Not in a finished wall, not in a finished temple, but the complete and finished work of Jesus. And nothing else but Jesus, our only hope. See, the issue of sin is dealt with through him and by him because of his perfect life. Sin's forgiven, a new heart given. And he begins to take our lives and our brokenness and our mess that just exists, these areas, these flaws and problems, and he begins to work in them. And he sets us apart and he calls us holy. And his righteousness and his goodness is accredited to our account because of the life he lived. See, church, God just doesn't want to leave you where you are at. But he wants to bring about a renewal, a restoration. Some of you have followed Jesus much longer than I, but you still got farther to go. God is not done with you. He still wants to work in you. He still wants to work through you. Then he allows us, by this process of sanctification, he allows us to be a part of his church, his work. Work that actually begins to bend out and extend this restoration to the rest of the world. Work that builds up his church. As we close, I just want you to reflect on a few things. Um, Nathan, if you want to come back up.
that maybe some of you today know there's areas of a brokenness or things that need work. I want, want you to know if you hear me anything, God wants to work in those places. And it might be a long process, it might be painful, but I think God desires not to leave you where you are, but wants to move you along and, and, and push you forward and bring you higher and bring you and shape you more like him to do a transformational work. But you kind of got to acknowledge it's there to begin that process. What are the hindrances keeping you from pursuing Jesus? To be a part of that. Would you, would you all stand with me? Instead of keep going and kind of bending this out and helping you think about this, um, I'd encourage you, whatever the proper response is now, that you take the time and engage with God. We're going to spend some time in worship, reflecting on these truths. If it's repenting that needs to take place, do it. If it's encouragement you need, if there's prayer, there'll be a prayer team up here. But take advantage of the time. And if you want to know one thing, if you want to leave with one truth, it's this. I want you to know that you are all greatly loved. And God wants to work in your lives. And he wants to use you in, in, in ways, in, in, in this city, in this church. There's something for you to do. He's gifted and equipped all of you. I'd encourage you to get to it. It's easy to watch other people engage. And I don't mean just in this Sunday gathering. This is two hours of a seven-day week. There's so much more. So would you pray with me? God, thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you give us these stories that, that show the way you work, that you are a God who restores, you are a God who redeems. God, thank you that you've already seen our brokenness and our mess, but yet you love us. work in our hearts, our lives. God, we want to be a part of your work. We want to live lives that matter for eternity. God, thank you for loving us. Just make up for words that lack out of my mouth that your Holy Spirit would just speak what needs to be there, that your name just be lifted high, that the truth would be communicated. And just now as we turn to you in song, that uh, respond to what it is you want to do. And that's in your name we pray. Amen.